0: you're not even in the game if you don't know how your mind works. You're you're, you're, you're not even in the fucking game, honestly. So like, you, you have to know how your mind works and how they work with emotions and the difference between emotions and feelings. And to be able to have command of yourself in any environment, it's it's a prerequisite in that space.
1: Welcome to the Performance Nutrition Podcast. Giving you the latest evidence-based research and cutting-edge insights for elite mental and physical performance. He's connecting you directly with the world's leading experts and coaches. Here's your host, Dr. Bubbs.
2: Welcome back, or welcome to the Performance Nutrition Podcast. I'm Dr. Mark Bubbs, Performance Nutritionist, and this is season number seven. What separates elite performers from the rest? the six inches between your ears. In today's episode, I'll be sharing clips from four leading experts on mindset, mental performance, and mental health. Dr. Jim Afremow will talk about the importance of thinking gold and never settling for silver. Dr. Michael Gervais will share why your personal philosophy matters and where to start with mindfulness. Dr. Tara Swart will discuss the science and insights on how to master your emotions, not just regulate them. And Dr. Drew Ramsey will share his experience on the new science of dealing with anxiety and depression. Tremendous insights from some of the best in the world. If you'd like to listen to the full interviews, check out the links in the show notes. All right, let's do this. Season 7, episode number 12. Enjoy. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing how much obviously athletes are working on their physical games and... The mental game being such a key differentiator between winning and losing, and how we need to be working more on our mental game, and you know whether the strategies are you know is it the self talk, the goal setting, the visualization, the breathing techniques. I mean, there are a plethora of different techniques. Is it really context driven in terms of what that individual needs? Are there certain starting points for people with their you know coach or athlete they're listening in?
3: You know, I, I like starting with a like a psychological framework or or a you know particular mindset, which is. Think gold and never settle for silver. And so you got to start with, you know, do I really want to see how good I can be? Mm -hmm. And how badly do I really want that? And once you decide to go after big things in life and, you know, you have big ideas and big goals, then it's like, okay, I need to start looking at everything that comes, you know, my way as a challenge to meet rather than a threat to avoid. So Mm. when you're really thinking gold in your life and wanting to live a gold medal life, um, you know, you have to attack everything <laughs> instead of you know run for cover. And so mm-hmm. I like to start with that, and it's kind of having a predator mindset, or you know, like yep. you know, a champion mindset or attitude. And then all the skills and strategies help to support that in terms of building our confidence, our concentration, our composure, and commitment.
2: Gotcha. I know there's certain aspects with with certain groups of athletes that tend to be the areas that we need to focus on, or does it become very individual to the person of those? particular traits that you're trying to support?
3: Well, what I've found, which is really cool is, you know, athletes are so different in terms of body type, uh, Mm -hmm. or maybe even age, but high performance is high performance in terms of thinking like a champion. So there's a lot more similarities. uh, You know, if I'm working with a champion in one sport and a champion in a different sport, could be a football player and a gymnast, then, you know, maybe it might look on the surface. So uh, to me, a lot of it does go back to self-talk, um, uh, you know, are you being your own best friend or are you your own worst enemy, you know, during the day in terms of your preparation. And then of course on game day when it's time to compete.
2: Yeah, that's a great point. And I think, uh, you know, my, my generation was sort of the Bobby Knight, uh, a lot of, you know, the coaches getting on the players and, and, you know, they, they would lift you up as well, but I think a lot of those patterns can get ingrained and, and people will just kind of, t- to your point using that same sort of self talk um but perhaps in your own life or a coach's life or an athlete there's no coach there to actually lift you up like they might have done in the past so can you talk about some of those those loops that we might get stuck in and how that can really start to derail uh you know someone's mental game
3: yeah it's really easy you know again it's just uh, kind of garbage in garbage out we tend to get stuck with you know negative uh, repetitive thoughts um so we might you know have a tough game and and we underperform and we just really start to beat ourselves up. You know, I suck. I'm terrible. I let the team down. Um, and even though that feels a little bit good in the sense that it shows that I care and you yeah. know and I'm not happy with settling for less than my best, it really just eats away at our core confidence. And so you really need to nip that in the bud and say, you know what? What did I do well? Give myself credit for that. What can I do better? And now that I know that, and sometimes it's just a small adjustment or, you know, a little correction, I'm going to really start, uh, you know, putting my best foot forward by making that correction. So now I'm a better player. And so it's looking at kind of like when I do well, give myself credit. That's like me to do that. You Mm -hmm. know, reinforce your self-image. When you don't do well, that's not like me to do that. What did I learn? What's going to help me next time? And so then a loss becomes some something more than just a stumbling block and becomes actually a stepping stone. And what's really cool about that is then you could be more driven. Yeah. So I've had athletes that say, you know, at the, at the top level say, when I win, I'm happy. And when I lose, I'm more driven. <laughs> so nice, it's kind nice. of, you can't lose either way. You know, if you have that mindset.
2: It's oh, tremendous. And, You know, Doc, when we think about some of the athletes and I'm thinking a lot of basketball players now, especially because they come into the league at such a young age. And of course, at Canada basketball, we get them 13 years old and we see this progression, which is great to actually be there for that whole progression. Um, But a lot of them are obviously succeeding at a high clip the whole time. I mean, there's no real, you know, there's challenges, but there are no real fundamental challenges, maybe until they reach this, this really high level where now they're not the star player. They're not getting all the minutes. They're at the end of the bench. And this might actually be, you know, despite best intentions along the way of being able to put in some of these skills, mental skills, it might actually be the first time where they really realize I've got to, you know, I've got to do something or or maybe they don't, but it's a situation in which it's going to really be useful for them now. You know, how is, how do you navigate that when you're, you know, particularly if the athlete maybe isn't the one to realize that they need that mental training. They might be a little bit on the fence or unfortunately some of those athletes are a bit standoffish, but we know that this is the thing that's really separating them from, from being able to realize, like you say there, you know, realizing their potential.
3: Yeah. It's really tricky because uh, for athletes that are not quite the best at what they do um, you know, they realize, look, I need to be mentally tougher or, you know, I can't get away with making too many mistakes, mental mistakes out there on the field or on the court. So they could be a little bit more open minded about what do you got for me today, you know, if they see me, whereas some of the superstars are like, hey, I didn't need this to get to this point. So I don't need it now. And, you know, my attitude is what got you here isn't necessarily what's going to keep you here. It's not a race just to get to this level. It's a race to stay at this level and see how good you can be. 100%. But I, I, I do think that, uh, you know, sports psychology is definitely becoming sexier and, you know, kind of more in vogue. And mm-hmm. um, and I think that's important, especially mental health as well. And, you know, I, I have a doctorate in sports psychology, but I'm also a licensed mental count, uh, a mental health counselor. And so sometimes athletes might come to see me for personal issues and yep. then say, well, what do you got for me, you know, in terms of my game or vice versa? uh, we're working on their mental game. And then it's like, man, you know, my parents are going through a divorce or, you know, I'm dealing with some substance abuse challenges. And so I really like working with the total athlete. Um, what's really helped me is word of mouth. So a lot of the pro athletes I work with have said, Hey, uh, I have a teammate that could really benefit from talking with you. And that really opens the doors for that other athlete to say, well, Hey, if you're working with my teammate, then, you know, this might not be so bad. 100%.
2: I mean, it is amazing, isn't it? How if the the leader or somebody in that position on a team organization takes that step, then all of a sudden, it's a lot easier for everybody else. And I'm I'm fascinated by this question around sort of mental performance and mental health, especially with the rise of awareness around mental health. You know, where where do you see that line around, you know, you know, we want to support an athlete's physical health to let them recover and perform their best. And that's something we're doing more of with sleep and nutrition, etc. And as we move towards mental performance, you know that mental health aspect and all the different demands on athletes, whether it's you know emotional life, family life, all the social media. You know, where's that sort of line for you, or is there a definition around mental health to mental performance? Could, could you share some insights there?
3: Yeah, it's it's actually a pretty blurry line because at the end of the day, we're you know we're we're yeah. a whole person and. But, you know, traditionally, at least I looked at it as, you know, uh, are you able to separate what's going on off the court with what you're doing on the court? So kind of have a mental locker when you show up to the court, uh, you know, or show up to practice, it's like, Hey, I'm going to put all my personal stuff in my mental locker and be here, you know, hundred percent focused on what I need to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, or, you know, uh, the other way around, if I have a tough game, uh, going through a rough patch in my performance, uh, am I, am I able to kind of leave that behind in my actual physical locker, so to speak? Mm-hmm. And then when it's time to, you know, focus on school or family or other responsibilities, I'm able to do that 100%. So, um, you know, that's ideal, but, but I think that's kind of hard to do because, you know, wherever we are, there we are, you know, in terms yeah. of with all the stuff going on in our lives and, you know, it's, it's nice in theory to be able to compartmentalize, but, you know, so I really think that, um. It's Important to have a go to person. Uh, when I was uh, working for the San Francisco Giants baseball organization, there was a phrase in the organization, but also throughout Major League Baseball, which was never suffer alone. Yeah, and I think just sometimes that, having that person that hey man, this is what's going on on the field, this is what's going on off the field. I just have someone I could talk about those things with, get a little bit of clarity, learn some skills and strategies that could be a huge difference maker.
2: Yeah, 100%. And you know, when you look at organizations, would you think that there's a, you know, just brainstorming here of a role, you imagine if people are really dealing with significant mental health issues. Obviously, reaching out to the team psychologist is one thing, but there are potential conflicts there, I guess, from the player or even the coach thinking, you know, how will this affect my playing time or, or my status? Is this where we need sort of third parties to come in to really be able to support, you know, uh, teams and, and coaches and athletes?
3: Yeah, I think there's pluses and minuses in terms of having someone on board, because then they're around you, you know, you you could, you know, usually if you're a pro athlete or a college student athlete, you're pretty busy. And so, yeah. uh, so you don't have huge blocks of time. So having someone right there available when you need to speak to them is important. Um, and, you know, just to be transparent, though, on the other hand, it is tough to you know, to kind of, you know, go see someone within the organization when people could see you walking into that person's office. And it's like, well, what are they going in there for? Mm -hmm. You know, what's that all about? And, you know, can I really trust this professional that they're not going to share it with the coaches? And, um, and so it is a, it is kind of a dance, you know, in terms of trying to figure all that out. I've actually had athletes that have reached out to me from other organizations, obviously, um, um, and said, you know, yeah, we got someone, but I'd rather meet with you. And then it was interesting when I did leave the San Francisco Giants baseball organization, some of the players that I never really worked with, I was friendly with said, Hey, I'd love to meet with you. And I'm like thinking, (laughs) why didn't you meet with me when I was there? So I think they were just more private, you know, in terms of what they wanted.
2: I mean, it's great to see athletes actually making that uh, first step these days, isn't it? Whereas it feels like a generation ago, you know, that would have been much less likely, no?
3: Yeah. Well, the old joke on the PGA tour is that, um, you know, 25 years ago, if you met with a sports psychologist, you're pretty weird. But (laughs) nowadays, if you're not working with a sports psychologist, you're pretty weird. And so, but you're, you're absolutely right. A lot of athletes are reaching out to me now saying, Hey, things are going pretty well. I just want to see how good I can get at my sport. And so it's, you know, nothing necessarily, they're not in a slump or nothing's necessarily going wrong. It's just, I want to Leave no stone unturned and see how great I can be. And I know the mental game is important. Uh, whereas early on in my career, was that, yeah, I'm going through a slump or I'm injured or I'm depressed, those kind of things.
2: Follow on what we were talking about with your athlete there and this concept that I hear, you know, I've heard you talk about for many years around personal philosophies and how we all have one, but if we're not actively participating in forming this personal philosophy, then a lot of the, all the subconscious thoughts and debris and, and
0: junk that we, thoughts that we all have can start to form your own personal philosophy for you. Um, if you abdicate and, and you allow the external world to over-index or influence in any way, really who you are is a long road. It's a long life from a very, um, stressful point of view, because each time you go into a new setting, you have to calibrate, what do they think of me you know, And that's mm-hmm. exhausting, right? And so the, we want to flip the model and the most powerful people I know, the, the half percenters that are doing the thing that are changing sport, changing an industry, maybe changing the way we understand human potential is that the external world does not influence their internal. And so they're working from the inside out. And so a personal philosophy is a fancy like two word, you know, little hyphenated um, clause there to say to, sh- to shorthand, like, what are your guiding principles? What are your first principles in life? And if you don't know them, you are going to get whipped around. So let's do this first principle work and write that stuff down. And then the the next part of that is like, if you can't get it out under duress it's probably just an academic exercise so like you Mm -hmm. you want to be able to get those first principles at least intellectually clear and anchored and then you want to practice them in such a way that they are as automatic as your signature of your um you know your autograph like it's as automatic as you possibly can and that's how this work comes to life And it it is a daunting task
2: isn't it i mean because it's something that's dynamic and it's evolving and it's changing so even in in nutrition so much of the work is mindset based and again relationship based to get people to actually comply and i've been surprised at you know the the feedback or the the progress people can make when they do lean into this but even surprised at how some very successful people in their 40s 50s 60s particularly men more so than even women if i have to say are could be a little bit resistant or almost you know, it almost takes them off guard to actually have to pause, zoom out thirty thousand feet, and really assess the, their own values versus just kind of chasing,
0: doing, going, achieving. Yeah, uh, ditto. I understand. I, I agree one hundred percent. Yeah, <laughs> and and I, and I don't think though that there is a difference for the um, let's say the the difference between the half percenters and and the the point zero one percenters. Like they're driving for this. They're like, oh, this is mm-hmm. great. You know. And they're not caught in the. Um, yeah, sometimes they're caught in it, but they understand the difference between the like the the treadmill type of life versus like this purpose driven. Let me use my imagination to to see the future as clearly as I can, and then let me back in all the capabilities, technical, physical, nutritional, mental that I need to be able to have that mm-hmm. future, um, even be a shot. You know, so, and, and they also understand, Mark, that you're not even in the game if you don't know how your mind works. You're, 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 you're not even yeah. in the fucking game, honestly. So like, yeah. you, you have to know how your mind works and how they work with emotions and the difference between emotions and feelings. And to be able to have command of yourself in any environment, Jesus, like, it, it's, it's a prerequisite in that space obviously fear drives
2: a lot of progress, you know, the f- competition, the fear of failure pushes us to work harder to practice longer hours. Um, but it all can also to what we started with in the discussion connect can lead to that fight, flight, freeze mode, where all of a sudden we can't express all the things we need to express, whether it's at work or on the playing field. And I've heard the quote, how, you know, acceptance of the present moment is where fear cannot exist. And so, you know, is that
0: true? Can you again unpack that? Yeah, I don't because- agree with that. Um, I'm not sure who the author of that idea was, but um, the present moment is where we have access to what is true. And so, I don't want to get too esoteric here, but I'll I'll do my best to make this as concrete as possible. Is that if what we're trying to do is to link this moment and the next and the next and the next as many thin slices of a moment as we can together. And when we string a bunch together, we find ourselves um, in what scientists call flow. Okay, Mm -hmm. so the present moment is the entryway in to high performance. It's the entryway into wisdom. It's the entryway into experiencing the experience. So if I am nervous, pretending like I'm not is a fool's game. You know, like it's, it's one, it mm-hmm. takes a lot of energy to fake anything, pretend anything. Um, that's kind of a joke. So if I'm aware that I'm nervous and I can label it. So I've got some emotional intelligence to go, Oh, this is nervousness. And then say, Oh, it's, a, it's actually, yeah, it's in my stomach. That's interesting. All right, cool. And then I've got a couple skills to be able to work with it. So just naming it, decreases it and a skill of breathing or self-talk that is grounded and true and not, I'm not making stuff up like some self-affirmation bullshit, but like you're saying it Mm -hmm. and or you label it, you, um, recognize it without judgment or critique, which is the practice of mindfulness essentially gives you that skill and ability. And then you've got some skills to work with it. So, so fear does exist. And, um, And if you're aware of it in the present moment, you can do something with it. What happens for many people is that um, the awareness game is not very sophisticated. So they, it's it's kind of like imagine if we're at the top of a rapids, right? You and I push off, and like we're we're cruising, is good. And then we can hear the rapids down the way, and we know that we're gonna kind of be up against something. And then all of a sudden, we take a big (laughs) chunk of time out of it. And then all of a sudden we're in the rapids thrashing. So that's what happens for many people is it's all good when it's good, it's easy. And they know maybe something Mm -hmm. challenging is coming, but then they somehow lose their way in between all of those moments because they're worrying or thinking about other things or distracted by the present, anything that is not to do with the present moment, but time keeps moving, the river keeps moving. And then we find ourselves thrashing Mm -hmm. and it's like, shit, I'm kind of a wreck like my heart's pounding and, and someone walks by and they, they're looking like, Hey, you good. And I, and I said, yeah, I'm good. And I'm a mess. <laughs> like like so, it's like yeah. that, that joke of a sequence that I'm just describing is more common than I think any of us would want, but it doesn't, we don't have to be that for way. Sure. It doesn't, it doesn't need to be that way. And when you talk about
2: breathing techniques or mindfulness techniques, are there certain ones for, you know, athletes or practitioners or just getting into this that you use as a way to to start to build up that sort of that skill set. So mindfulness is
0: um, it's necessary, but not sufficient. And I hear my colleagues going, Oh my God, what, why does he keep saying that? You know, like, because it is necessary. Mindfulness is one. It's a practice that's been around 2,600 years. The science around it is ridiculous. Um, And at one level, it is increasing your awareness of what's happening with your thoughts, your emotions, your body, the unfolding present moment. Really, it is it, it is a practice of becoming aware. And again, if you're not aware, you're not even in the game. So there are thousands of types of meditations, but there's two main principles that guide them. Okay, so one main principle is called single point. And so single point is set a timer, whatever, eight minutes, 20 minutes, the research ranges between those two uh, bumpers to um, to focus on one thing uncommonly, relentlessly, without judgment and critique, just focus on it. When your mind wanders, you gently quickly return back to focusing on it. That's it. And that's a great way to to not get caught into the, um, the let's call it the baggage that can come with an uninformed distance from a distance thinking about what mindfulness is, right? There's some baggage that can come with the word meditation. Like, are we hugging trees? No, what are we yeah, we're here. Going yeah. On. But if you want to start in a really concrete way and you focus, let's just say, like on your inhale and then on your exhale with all of your essence, Mark, focus on the inhale. And then with all of your might and essence, mm. you know, in the easiest most gentle way. So you're, it's not rigid, focus on your exhale and rinse and repeat for eight minutes. And that, that is, that's a challenge now.
2: I was going to say, it's a good, you know, we get a lot of coaches, SC coaches, therapists, practitioners asking around these strategies for mindfulness, particularly with all types of athletes, but a lot of younger athletes as well. Like, where do we start with just developing? um, And I've heard some practitioners and scientists talking about even in kids preschool, putting a, a bear or stuffed that toy on their belly and starting to experience that to just be able to
0: introduce, but imagine getting up to that sort of eight minutes with a, you know, a younger group would be a great target. Easy. It? Yeah. It's not, it's, it's quite, it's wonderful actually, you know, like when you first expose people to it and just like all training, you don't just say, Hey, do this and will let's check in later. It's more like, let, let's walk through it together. and people find themselves like oh god thank you like that was great and and at times it's really challenging because sometimes it's the hardest 10 minutes of my time of my day you know or 20 minutes of my day
2: hey friends i hope you're enjoying this episode a quick reminder athlete performance nutrition is opening up a new fall 2023 cohort of the football performance nutrition online course this september The FPN course covers everything you need to know about football performance nutrition, from energy systems and training demands, to macronutrients and supplementation, periodization and football hydration, recovery nutrition, concussion and mental health, as well as case studies, and the Coach's Corner, where you'll learn leadership, mindset, and lessons learned from the trenches from the best of the best in football. Learn from leading practitioners in the NFL and NCAA and get a front row seat to the monthly mentoring sessions so you can make a bigger impact with your athletes. The early bird special is $100 off and ends at the end of this month. Head over to athleteperformancenutrition.com forward slash courses, use the promo code FPN100 and you'll save $100 off the cost of the course. And as a special bonus, you'll receive all 14 talks from the recent FPN summit as well. All right, let's get back to the conversation. Tara, thanks so much for taking the time today.
1: Hi, Mark. It's a pleasure, as always.
2: Well, listen, I'm really excited to dive right into talking about your phenomenal new book, uh, The Source, which is uh, tremendous in the fact that it really permeates a lot of different uh, areas of performance. And, you know, for me, an evolutionary um, perspective on things really helps me to to navigate, you know, complex problems. And so, you know, from your standpoint, you know, what aspects of the brain are symptoms of evolutionary hardwiring that we really most need to fight against and retrain?
1: Great question. Thank you. I do love making these parallels between how we lived in the cave and the things that made us actually survive and, and essentially become the most successful animal on the planet. And then the the aspects of, of those things that don't serve us any longer. So, um, I'd, you know, I, I don't actually like to use the word hardwired because of what we know about neuroplasticity now, which is mm-hmm. the ability of the brain to change itself and how much it does change, even if we're not conscious of it. Um, but you're so right. There are some things that have literally been in our brains for millennia. And I guess the the most alarming one is um, about unconscious bias. So when we lived in the cave, we... we survived in tribes of no more than 150 people so we could essentially recognize everybody in our tribe Um, but even then the tribes were delineated according to skin color hair texture eye shape eye color that kind of thing Mm -hmm. and although that no longer serves us and and you know is isn't relevant some of those things are still in our brain so it's with everything that you and I will talk about, and I know, you know in your work as well, it's always about raising from non-conscious to conscious, whether it's your biases, whether it's behavior patterns that drive you, but you're not aware of it, um, anything at all. The more you raise your awareness of it, that's when you can use the power of neuroplasticity to make any changes that you might desire.
2: And are there strategies, Tara, for being able to, to do that, to help us go from the unconscious to conscious?
1: So I've tried to make the book really practical. So there are lots of exercises in it that help with this kind of thing, but I do think it starts with journaling. Um, I I had a very regular journaling practice myself before I started writing the book and was quite shocked at when you read over the last three or six months, how many times I was thinking and saying the same thing, but expecting things to change around me. That's very true, right? I think we can all relate to that. Um, it's, it's funny, though, because sometimes when you think about journaling, that doesn't necessarily include reading back over your entries. Um, but to me, that was the most insightful part of having kept a journal. Um, so either by journaling, or obviously speaking to a coach, a therapist, a friend, um, just to get that other perspective, because, you know, what everything we see, we see as a fact, because it's filtered by our own perspectives. Um, but we don't know what we don't know. So whether it's journaling, whether it's talking to someone else or doing some specific exercises that look at behavior patterns that are so natural for you that you're not aware of them. Um, those are the main ways of doing it. I mean, I guess things like meditation and contemplation um, lead to that too. I just like to be really practical and, and offer people tangible solutions rather than just think about mm-hmm. you know, what's worked and not worked kind of thing.
2: Absolutely. And that's a powerful insight to go back over the journaling because I think, you know, whether it's nutrition or training, oftentimes, you know, athletes, clients will get so stuck into the moment that without going back to look at what they've done in the past and, and that progression, that really starts to elucidate a lot of the patterns, as you mentioned there, that are maybe holding us back and, and some of the lessons that we're learning. And, of course, in today's society, we're, you know, we're always doing now. where you don't have a chance to sort of go for a walk and let our thoughts Percolate around where we were always tuning in and trying to get more and more information, and we seem to be going from you know more emotional beings to more logically driven beings and you know there are some consequences to that which you talk about in the book. Could you share some of those?
1: Yes, it really relates back nicely to how you started off asking about evolution, and of course, at one point, we were us humans we were walking around on the savanna with other animals, and we were nothing special. Um, At that time, we had a well-developed limbic system, which is the more emotional, intuitive parts of the brain. And your own limbic system is about the size of your clenched fist. So you can imagine that inside your skull. Mm -hmm. And then around that, we had a very thin layer of of the outer cortex, which are the more rational, um, regulatory processes in the brain. And it was around the time that we discovered fire. And we, we don't know if we discovered fire by accident and then we were able to control it and Cook meat and therefore digest protein more efficiently and that that's when our cortex grew Or it may be that we naturally evolved to grow a larger cortex and then we were able to use tools and and make and control fire but either way that is basically our first cognitive revolution and So our cortex massively grew to become about as thick as the limbic system. And that's why we have such a large skull now. And that meant that we could try to predict and plan for the future. And we developed the ability to articulate speech. Now, once you can speak, then, you know, if you say something to me, I say something to you, we take that very much at face value. Mm -hmm. We don't pay as much attention to body language. And we certainly don't pay much attention to the primal feelings that we get just by being around each other so those layers of being that actually led us to become the most successful animal on the planet we've demoted things like emotion and equated that to weakness we've until recently with the brain scanning studies we've kind of said well intuition isn't a real thing you know how do you know it's it's right
2: exactly Um,
1: but we've said that logic is, it's facts, it's data, it's the best way of thinking, that's what we should all be doing. And I just don't agree with that.
2: I mean, it is it's it is so impressive and amazing. You know, I'm always brought back to comments by our sports psychologist, uh, Dr. Peter Jensen, who talks all about how emotions drive behavior. And, you know, 90% of the decisions we make are are driven by emotion. And so it's, mm. it is, um, you know, even if we're in a scientific world and trying to, You know, obviously, make evidence-based choices. It's we can't tease out this emotional aspect, and as you talk about in the book, it can. It's obviously a big throttle to be able to propel our ability to perform in all domains as well, right?
1: Mm. Yeah, and that's why I talk about mastering your emotions. So, it's not about being emotional. Um, It's not about having too much or too little emotion. It's about having that really perfect range that actually you know, it makes us less stressed, it makes us well, and, and it can lead to higher performance. And, you know, that is one of the six in, in the, my brain agility model, but I've purposely put it as number one to, to sort of build up the importance of it. And I've put logic at number four. So I'll just run through them for the listeners.
2: I was going to say um, that yeah, the brain agility <laughs> model is definitely something that I think all the listeners are really going to uh, gravitate towards for sure. So if you could walk through that would be terrific.
1: Yeah, I thought you'd like like that bit. Um, so I put number one, mastering your emotions. Number two is know yourself, which is the brain body connection. You know, probably quite obvious to many of your listeners, but I can tell you in business where I do most of my consulting, it's it's not even thought of as a concept. Um, third is trust your gut, which is listening to your intuition. Fourth is logic, which is make good decisions. Fifth is stay motivated and resilient to reach your goals and bringing all of those together is using your brain power to create the life that you desire or the outcomes that you want in the real world.
2: Yeah, it is such a great exercise to be thinking in all those different ways and you, as you mentioned, you outlined some great um, tools and, and, and tactics that people can use in the book to kind of work through this and because it's not always self-evident, is it? I mean, when you actually put pen to paper and, and think about a, a challenge or a problem and all these different ways of thinking about it, as in the journaling example that you gave previously, you know, looking back on this, you can start to see patterns emerge where we tend to default to certain ways of those six that we tend to always use and others that we may not be using as much. Is that, is it, is that fair to say?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And that's where the neuroplasticity piece comes in, because it's not about being good at everything or equal at everything. It's about understanding where your strengths and preferences lie and absolutely playing to those strengths. And then getting yourself to the point of comfort where you can say, OK, if there was a crisis or something suddenly changed around me, even though I'm primarily logical and I'm quite creative, I could think intuitively or, or use my empathy if I needed to. Um Again, in the sort of industries that I work in, the physicality aspect is usually the lowest one. So, you know, there are some quite simple things that you can do there to um, build up your sense of interoception, which is the physiological state of the inside of your body. Um, I always say to people, if you've got young children, then, you know, watching them go from not being able to tell you when they need to go to the loo or they're hungry, um, to the bathrooms, right? Mm-hmm, yeah, not um, for sure. <laughs> To the fact that you know they, they learn what it feels like when they need to use the bathroom, when they're hungry, when they're tired. They can tell you that instead of crying. And it's kind of the same with us. So basically, all of those six pathways in the brain, some of them will be like superhighways in your brain. And some of them will be a bit more like a dirt road. And it's exactly the same physiological process, um, building up those pathways to be more like superhighways, as if you were learning a new language. So, you know, let's say you decided to learn French. Um, If you downloaded an app and you, you know, you practiced whenever you had some spare time, but you didn't plan to go to the French speaking part of Canada anytime soon, then you in six months' time you might have picked up a few words, you might feel like you could start a very basic conversation. But instead, if you signed up to a French class, you went to the class every week, you did your homework. And you knew that you had a test at the end of it, or that you were going to go um, to a part of the country where most people speak French. Then the chances are that you would have built that pathway up much better than the half-hearted attempt. So it's like that. Yeah, it's like that with everything. You know, if it's if it's build up your emotional intelligence, then you have to do the listening, the eye contact, the paying attention, the not interrupting, um, until that becomes natural for you.
2: Yeah, it's fascinating to think about. I mean, how much does our environment play a role as you mentioned there, if you're gonna go and travel to somewhere, you know, in Quebec and Canada, or if you're gonna live in France, and when you're in that location trying to learn that language, I, I assume that gets back to the motivation factor of, of you know, you can't escape it. You literally have you're in, in the deep end and you've got to now take on board these new words and this new way of communicating. But it is amazing how much more quickly, you know, we can learn when we're fully immersed if we use the, you know, the language uh, example.
1: Totally. I mean, I don't know if this says something about me, Mark, but I find that the times that I've been most successful in my life was when I didn't have a choice. I felt like, you know, like, for example, when I changed career from being a doctor to starting up my coaching and speaking practice, um, there was a point where I couldn't afford to pay my rent. And some people said to me, if you just went back to the hospital and did a locum for one weekend, you could earn enough money to cover your rent for the next few months. But for me, going back to something felt like a failure. And I, I knew that I had to have a single point of focus and I had to keep moving forward. And actually, that slightly scary feeling of, um, you know, that if I didn't make it work, I, I would really like not have stability and security in my life probably drove me. But again, Absolutely. you know, like we were saying, yeah, I mean, you want the right level of balance. You don't you don't want to be so stressed. Um and, you know, putting your basic life foundations at risk, you need to have the positive motivation as well. But sometimes a little bit of fear does drive performance, as I'm sure you know.
2: You know, you've touched on this a little bit before, maybe unhappy in the, in the place that you're in. You know, how is looking to the brain for solutions, again, going to help propel a person to their performance potential?
1: Yeah, really good question. And, you know, again, it's a little bit disheartening, but I see this issue so much people unhappy at work or in a relationship, but just feel totally trapped. And so, I mean, looking to the brain, it, you know, it's, it seems obvious to me from the cognitive science point of view that, that how you think inevitably influences your, your happiness, your health, your wealth, your quality of your relationships. And so That's why I felt it was so important that psychology and neuroscience should um, inform things like abundant thinking, um, visualization. And so I'm going to go here to one of the key points in my book, which is about creating a vision board. Um, However, I do call it an action board because it's not about creating an image of the ideal life that you want and then waiting for it to come true. You have to do things every day to make it come true. But if you're... Um, If you're in a stuck position like that, which so many people are, then the actual act of creating a collage by hand, although it can also be done digitally these days, with metaphorical representations of everything that you would like your life to look like, it actually, through some processes in the brain called selective attention and filtering and value tagging, It actually primes your subconscious to notice and grasp opportunities that might otherwise have passed you by. It's so easy to understand that if you get into this negative spiral, if you start feeling like there's not enough opportunity out there for everyone, then you're not going to do things to put yourself at risk. If you do take some time to reflect on what you would really like your life to look like and you create this imagery to represent it, um, I keep mine by my bed so that I always look at it lasting at night because there's a psychological phenomenon called the Tetris effect, which is, did you ever play Tetris on your I game I did play boy? Tetris, yeah. <laughs> and do you remember that when you, when you close your eyes to go to sleep, you could see the bricks falling down in Absolutely. front of your eyes? So that's the, one of the priming effects on the brain. The last thing you look at before you fall asleep has a very powerful effect on your subconscious. Um, and you know, I've been doing these for years, and they've worked for me, but I did feel compelled to look into the science behind why a vision board or visualization would work. And I was really stunned by, um, you know, it was so easy to find the scientific explanation for it. And a lot, yeah, and, and, you know, a lot of people have said to me that I've heard about vision boards before, but when I you know understood the science then I was compelled to make one so I really hope that your listeners will go out and do that particularly if they're feeling stuck and trapped at the moment
2: it's terrific I was going to say yeah I mean small steps obviously and being able to you know anytime we're trying to change a behavior having that gap be as small as we can is definitely a, a big help and you know one of the things around anxiety which really starts to blow me away is even now we see with a lot of our young nba players whether they're canadians or americans and struggling with things like anxiety or low mood at a really young age which seems paradoxical because when you think of someone who's been training their whole life they finally make it to the nba they're making all this money we would think that this is this is happiness oh, right this, is, this is you know I'm those first. you know
4: these guys better than that that's not what it's like and, and, and <laughs> I mean, so
2: you know um, is that something that we're seeing in the you know are you seeing rates of anxiety in, in, in younger populations or you
1: know, we're what? seeing a
4: couple of things i mean first I, I, I guess i was somewhat serious of you work with NBA players and so you see the inside of it a little behind the scenes where there are those moments it's amazing but there's also the pressure there's also just the incredible toll it takes on their bodies there's also the fact that you're a commodity and you're treated and traded as an object, which I just no matter how much your team loves you and your fans love you, that's really hard on the psyche. Mm-hmm. That that you're a you've got a little moment in the sun. Um, and, and it is so hard on these young men and their bodies. I, I, I think we've also had just some wonderful leadership um, from the NBA. Um, certainly Kevin Love started it, but there've been a number of players who are really speaking openly about their mental health and, mm-hmm. and having panic attacks and depression. Um, so it, it's been really great to see that. I, our, your question, are we seeing more? So the rate of... Um, I think it was the, suicide, the rate of suicide went down by 6% last year, which I think I wouldn't say it surprised Jeez. everyone, but I think there was a big fear there was going to be a huge surge. I'm like one of those people that like, I don't kind of let my breath out in the movie when things look a little better. I like, know like <laughs> so not to be hysterical about it or worried. Yeah. I just, I, I do think that as things ease up a little bit more of the processing of what we've been through, at least for me, what I'm seeing in my patients and myself, just like stuff is Bubbling to the surface because it can now, and yeah. it didn't. I think kids, you know, if we're going to talk about folks in their teens and twenties, are much more aware about mental health, but they're also facing an environment that I'm. I'm 47. It's really, and I, I'm really blessed. I get to treat a lot of young uh, men and women, and so I feel when I say like I'm blessed, it's like nice to hear about it Yeah. And hear the way that people are changing everything from how folks think about relationships and relationship structure to um the sexuality to gender so there's i think both you know this new pressure and social media and all the bad stuff we hear about but I think there's also like an opportunity more than there ever has been to be yourself and to have that honored whatever that means to you mm-hmm. um I would say that because there aren't as many guardrails about identity and who we are, there is more of a propensity, I think, for people to struggle with really thinking about this in ways that I think my generation in some ways didn't struggle with as much or didn't have some of those questions. And so it's a challenging time. I think that the rates of depression and anxiety, certainly in some of of the data have gone up Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think certainly when you look at, at least prior to this year, what was happening, we were seeing tremendous rises in, um, you know, suicide is sort of the measure that gets talked about and used is, um, but I think it's important also to just look at straight up rates of depression. So in the U.S. now, um, and I don't think this is bad. I, often the, the statistic gets thrown around and people are like, ooh, it's horrible. But one um, in four women over the age of 60 take an okay. antidepressant medication. And it's an interesting statistic for a few reasons. One is, you know, that often gets like pronounced as like, well, we're over-prescribing antidepressants. And I think well, yeah. that's one way to look at it. The other way to look at it is we uh, culturally promote depression in women over the age of 50. And I think to me, that rings much more true of, we yeah, just don't that environment situation. We right? have a, yeah. We just have a hugely misogynistic culture and issue on our hands about that. And so um Certainly antidepressants aren't the way to deal with that, but when people have symptoms and and symptoms of depression that stem from that, I mean, that's one of the reasons they get employed. Um, Mm -hmm. So uh, yeah, but those are some thoughts on the prevalence and incidence of depression and anxiety and what's happening. The The modern brain is up against some challenges, I think probably what we both agree on.
2: Yeah. And and circling back to one of your comments around identity, I think one of the things that we get, if we stay on this performance side is, you know, a younger athlete who's always been the best at their sport and everyone tells them, you know, you're so talented, you're so gifted. And they climb the ranks up and which is tremendous, you know, through high school and college, and they might finally make it to the NBA. And that's actually the first time where they're really facing a challenge where they're at the end of the bench or, they're not getting all the attention or they might not make the team. Um, And so that identity being so wrapped up in their, in their being the basketball player and being the star, now that might be changed or they might not make the team. Can you talk a little bit about how, you know, that, that, I guess I don't know if it comes back to that fixed versus growth mindsets, but can you explore that a little bit less?
4: I can talk, I mean, I should tell you what it triggers in me is thinking about the challenge for all people where work becomes our identity and particularly for men you mm-hmm. take away my patients, my practice. I don't know my, what I get to do. My, my wife will tell you like come Sunday night, sometimes I'm not the best person to be with. And it's not because I dread Monday. It's because I haven't worked in the last couple of days. <laughs> yeah. And then like, I'll, I'll see some patients. I'll do some work. So like, how are you? I'm like, I'm great. Because <laughs> yeah. so much of our, our identity is tied up in, in, in what we do. And, 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 and there's some great stuff to that. Mm -hmm. being productive and and having a professional identity. I think that's wonderful, whether it's your basketball player or a a naturopathic doctor or, you know, it. it, 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 but what you're speaking about is specifically is people's identity rests in being lauded. And -hmm. whatever that is, whether you're the best sports, or I was talking to somebody uh, earlier today who was like the hardest partier. Yeah. And as he (laughs) like pulled his life into really more serious focus, you know, there are a lot of people who are disappointed in him. Yeah, because, and, and so um, certainly it's hard to keep perspective and have gratitude in a real way. I think it's where having people work gravi- gra- their gratitude muscle, not in a superficial way that a lot of us do, like, you know, I'm thankful. I'm thankful for all this. It's like, no, mm. like, be thankful for your big legs and your big feet and your big hands and your muscles. Like, be, <laughs> be thankful for the fact that it's just second nature that you can drop the ball in the bucket. Be thankful that you even have a shot. Um, I think that can help with that. I think understanding when you hit your limit, like if you're in the number 10 man on the team and your job is helping your team practice, basically, I don't know. I played JV basketball. Mm -hmm. I still remember, I still to this day, remember the game that I got pulled into the varsity bench and thrown in and like scored three buckets unexpectedly and the look on everyone's face and the feeling of it. So I think no matter where you are on the team, you, you know you get your moment, and working on being prepared for that. At least that's my sense. You work with more of those folks than I do. I've certainly seen a few in my day, and I think the folks who handle that with the most poise don't see that end goal as being number one. They see and focus on the process of being in uh, in that flow state with the body with the mind with the gratitude i think those are the folks who handle it the best and often end up doing the best
1: yeah
2: i mean 100 i mean that's definitely you know our mental performance coach uh dr peter jensen always talks about that you know that process and and being in the moment And i think you know in, in past generations maybe that building up to getting to where you needed to go there was sort of more more years built into that and more time i guess to build some of those mindset skills whereas it feels like today they're that progression is, is pretty quick and it's uh, you know it you have to a be bit more cognizant, don't it, they to, to yeah, it, just, to... it,
4: it comes at a significant cost it, 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 that to experience adolescent development in the midst of preparing to play in the NBA, it just you know it, it has a cost to it for these um, young men and, and women. Um, and uh, that you know that just the more that organizations that benefit from those costs, the more they can do to support mental health, to support mental health services, to make sure Mm -hmm. that, um, you know, we all get inspired. I love what, you know, we all love to watch these players, but, but I think we should all understand it. You know, the costs, we focus so much on everything they get. And I just, I I hope that they all have access to really great mental health uh, services as well.
2: You know, if we we maybe pivot here and talk about almost the coaching staff, performance staff, or the rest of us in, in, in midlife and how, you know, the, the busyness, the madness, the long working hours, or, you know, young kids at home, or even maybe it's caring for older parents. And that Did can you have You talking about my
4: house tonight? It's <laughs> like, you know, it's going to get me crying here, like, doc. Like these like, are okay, exactly this? right.
2: These are all things that, you know, from a training, from a performance standpoint, we'd say, well, that athlete's overtraining. So it's normal, like a, a symptom of overtraining is, is lower mood. Um, but in this period of midlife this life load adds up, right. But we don't really think of it like exercise. We just, you know, and so, and so you know, I think about talk- it
4: all in the same way, actually these days, okay. I have no, that whole work-life separation for me dissolved in the pandemic yeah. already. I'm like, I'm a psychiatrist. So I'm interested in inner world, real talk, how you feel. So, um, I, I think getting in that state where we don't think, you know, it's funny where we think about training our bodies and a little bit training our minds, but we, we don't then translate that to where it's most important and powerful. Like for me, it's the discipline to stop working and go help cook dinner not mm-hmm. just sit down. Or it's the discipline to really in those times engage with my kids, not just be another busy overworked dad and, and to train in the same way. Like I've been down to myself this week and of like the issue is you didn't have a solid schedule last weekend of not to have my kids over schedule, but just in terms of being really intentional about you know what honestly is the limited time that people get with family these you know we're coming out of the pandemic so I think it's like that's not probably a very popular thing to say everyone's like ready to get my family. So <laughs> I, a lot I of think that time. a lot of people I spoke with really loved it was like a gift. You know, as much as to complain about, I don't know, like being in close proximity with family, especially if you if you have kids, I mean, it's just such a gift to get to spend that much time together because usually the modern world eats that time. Yeah, but I just, I guess all the encourage, I, I, I think at the heart of what you're saying is how do we... Manage taking care of ourselves with all of the demands that come in this midlife piece, right? I'm like, and- yeah,
2: especially as it relates to low mood, because it's, you know, we tend to just put a label on something, right? Like mm-hmm. this person has a mental health condition or this person has depression. And to your point earlier, all these different inputs that are influencing it, whether it's the inflammatory terrain yeah. or the lack of social, you know, connection with friends and, um, you know, lack of sleep, even, we know, you know, makes it harder to disengage from negative thoughts, all these types of things. And so, you know, when you're looking at someone who has low mood, you know, walk us through that, just that complex space of the different you know is it just a neurochemical imbalance or are all these inputs having that that impact on
4: it's always neurochemical like everything that happens to us up there is neurochemical you know i I think is it just an imbalance i think certainly some people are more prone to depression or uh, a negative bias for a lot Mm -hmm. of reasons i think a lot of folks have had things for example like trauma that puts them more prone to both depression but also makes it harder for the things that insulate us like you know I, I think about like the landscape of my patients i mean i was just thinking like man i could just walk through like my low mood this morning <laughs> you know i <I'm> think <laughs> about the, the places i know where it came from mm-hmm. right? like i was ready to get back to work also i'm in some transitions i'm thinking about a move i'm thinking about a variety of different things um uh, there's uh, i finished a project i know that always kind of tweaks my mood right so that all these things yeah. where i'm Thinking, and then I'm thinking about the biology. How was my sleep? My diet was not great over the weekend. So, I think in psychiatry, we think you use what's called a biopsychosocial model. Mm-hmm. So, I'm looking for the biological piece, right? Is there something going on with me medically that I haven't thought about? I haven't been to the doctor. Probably not, but I'll go check my, you know, my B12, my iron, my thyroid. It's been a year. Mm-hmm. Um, is there something else going on in terms of other symptoms and severity of symptoms where well, I'll look at the time course? Right? if I'm if I have a big crying session today because I'm upset or sad, like I'm okay with that. Even tomorrow, I'm fine with that. But if I'm crying without a good cause, multiple days, a week in a row, to me that feels a little more biologically driven depression. Versus, there's a really good reason. I'm crying every day because I lost somebody to the pandemic, or because um, I'm really upset about something, or you know. So there is, I think, time course, symptom severity. And then I think probably the mistake people make is they think that treatment equals what's so bad. Now you need to dot, dot, dot. Oh, it got so yeah. bad. I needed some, developed. Oh, it got so bad. I needed a therapy. Final. Oh, it got so bad. I went to see a psychiatrist. I think that I don't know how to, I'm curious your thoughts on how we change that culture. Cause it's kind of like saying, Oh, I got heart disease, cancer, diabetes. You know, I decided to go to the doctor. <laughs> so it,
2: was, it was time.
4: <laughs> it was time. It was time. You know, just like, kept like, we wouldn't do that. We, we expect you to go to the doctor every yeah. year and there's certain things that you do for your health. And so I I hope we're seeing a shift in mental health to do more of that, where um, there's a more of a a sense of prevention and more of a sense of really partnering with people to take care of their mental health.
2: Yeah, I was going to say, you know, for yourself as a psychiatrist, that seems like a real, you know, almost daunting endpoint for a lot of patients or clients, particularly men, let's, let's say, you know, who like to your point is like, they have to get to that level. And then now it's like, now I'm at the psychiatrist versus all oh, those things those things, that you just described about being aware of like that time course or being aware of the biology or all these things that you're mentioning, which the typical person is obviously unaware of. And then that just, you know, perpetuates itself until they get to that time point where, you know, they might need a psychiatrist, but geez, that would, you know, would have been so useful more towards the beginning of that journey. And so how yeah. do we start to normalize that from a medical sense, like in terms of how you think about it, are there ways to integrate some of these things more, more easily and take away some of that stigma?
4: Uh, there are a few things we're trying to do. I mean, and, and I hope to be part of the conversation. I mean, I should just say, since I've been in medical school, I've been in therapy and, and working on my own mental health. I mean, I think that's when people think of the example of a mental health patient, you know. Um, I think you should, one of the things that struck me in my time in the field is it just looks like everyone else. There's not any, it's not like yeah. we know. And, uh, and maybe that's sort of obvious to everyone, but I, I do just um, encourage people to speak up about their own mental health. I think that in terms of what we do for men, I think there's a big, uh, a, a big opportunity to really decrease stigma in terms of Um, not having it be what I always hear of like what brought bring somebody in is like their partner said they should come in or their someone said they were concerned right and that we get away from this notion that you know it's masculine to not get help because that's just garbage that's why 75 percent of uh, suicides in America completed suicides are men they're middle-aged white men primarily Um, and so And then also, there's a statistic that looks around like, oh, men, the rate of depression in men is about half that of women, which I think is total BS as well. Because the rate of substance uh, dependence in men, lifetime risk of substance dependence in men is 49%. So one in two men is going to be addicted to something or dependent on something in their lifetime. So... uh, but in terms of awareness and next steps, I think there's just the reality check of where's your mental health? Do you check mm-hmm. in about it? Do you think about it? And some of the tenants of that, as uh, a psychiatrist, think about um, affective stability, like, is your mood, like, where is your mood? Is it up? In, like, what's the range of it? How much does mm-hmm. it go up and down? And, and kind of how aware are you of what affects it? Now, I'll hit some pretty low moods, but like, I you know, I, I know what that's about. And I also mm-hmm. kind of know how to get myself out of it, um, usually. Um I think there's also the, one of the big skills is the uh, talking and expressing um, what's going on inside with people. I think there's a lot of hesitancy that people have to do that. And so getting mm-hmm. getting used to that um, and, and, and working on that with somebody. Um, you know, and uh, and Doc, I've heard that just
2: like def- me. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've, I've read as well that depression in men will, you know, we often have this idea of just the lower mood, the sadness, this sort of um, um these types yeah, of symptoms when we see you know more things around like that more like anger outbursts or like that kind of yeah, men, men you know. don't get
4: men aren't the sad i mean they're definitely you can get them teary like sometimes <laughs> there are a few like the sad more tearful men but it, yeah. usually it's irritable angry shut down i call it defended right where it's just yeah. or men talk about Before how it, it just goes the up. okay and yeah. it's like how you doing it's like i'm good Like, really? You seem hostile and angry. It's like, nope. (laughs) like you must be wrong. (laughs) And and I think all men, not all men, but a lot of men know that, right? And I wouldn't say it's just a male thing. I think anytime people feel hurt or misunderstood, they emotionally shut down. I mean, I think it's how we make this like, oh, you know, men don't like to talk about their feelings. And it's like, no, I don't think that's... I treat lots of men. I sit for 45 minutes and men just, they talk, they talk, I talk, all we talk about is feelings. The whole, whole day I talk to men about feelings. So I don't think it's in any way accurate to say men don't talk about feelings or their brains are wired differently. I think all this is total hogwash. Okay. I think that we have a culture that doesn't promote emotional vulnerability among men. Mm -hmm. And, and, and that sounds like some weird touchy feely thing as opposed to like, I think what actually makes men who sort of get into the stance, just probably some of the strongest people around just really an ability to know the self, to know others, to be connected, to be thoughtful, helpful, and um, yeah, and really mentally healthy.
2: Thanks for listening to the performance nutrition podcast. As always appreciate you taking the time, please rate, review, and subscribe to the performance nutrition podcast. It's a big help to the show and keeps us attracting the best of the best in performance nutrition. All right, see you next time.
1: The Dr. Bub's Performance Podcast endeavors to provide accurate and helpful information to listeners. These podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Dr. Bub's Performance Podcasts.